Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. What a wonderful playing by Rory. Thank you so much for that. So great to have a next Caroline in the making. We can't wait for that. The body of Christ needs, every church needs a Caroline. So we're so grateful for that. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship to the one who is worthy to receive it. You've often heard us say that our gathering for worship is a preview of heaven. It's the closest thing we experience to heaven on this side of eternity. If worship does not capture our heart and our desire in the here and now, there's no sense desiring heaven because you won't enjoy it very much anyway. We see demonstrated in scripture that worship is what is happening in heaven all throughout Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 11, we see the elders gathered around the throne in worship. Chapter 5, verse 12, angels in worship. 5, 13, all creatures in worship. 7, verse 10, a great multitude in worship. Chapter 19 shows all the saints in worship. Worship. But while the church Sunday morning is the body that gathers corporately for this dress rehearsal of heaven... That is not the only time our worship occurs. Theologian A.W. Tozer writes, quote, Go to church once a week and nobody pays attention. But worship God seven days a week and you become strange. Close quote. Indeed, what Paul calls a peculiar person to the world. Lost people gather in droves to go to a place that they call church on a Sunday morning. Yet I remember Billy Graham saying once in an interview that in many churches today, more than half those in attendance are not actually born again. Their faith begins when they walk in the church doors and stays there when they leave. Perhaps they claim some sort of personal faith that's just between them and God, and maybe I just don't wear my faith on my sleeve. Oh, I love Jesus, but I just don't go on and on about it. There's no demonstration in Scripture of such a faith. A Christianity that can be contained within you with no outworking demonstration is not the faith that we see demonstrated in the Word. A Christianity that is confined to a Sunday morning is not worth the gas to get there. If you are born again, beloved, you are a strange person. You are a peculiar person, Scripture says. We don't look or act, or speak like the world. We love the unlovable. We forgive when the world would retaliate. We're not pursuing and prizing what the world longs after. Our affections are for something else. We long for a new heaven and a new earth. We mourn the cost and the penalty of sin that we see around us. We bemoan our own flesh and its warring desires. We long to be rid of them. We long to be free of the fight. That is a saint in the battle seven days a week, a set-apart one, a called-out one, one who is strange to the world, one who is not running after the reward in the here and now, but seeks to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. As the darkness grows, our strangeness to the world will look ever more so. Fools for Christ, seven days a week. Let the world watch and wonder. Let them gawk and gasp. Here in our corporate gatherings is where you are equipped and refreshed. But now, dear Christians, go be salt and light 
in the world. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed, all in one message to our surprise, a third and impactful passion prediction of our Lord to his disciples. And we marveled as Jesus once again laid out in specific detail the suffering and death that awaited him as they made their way to Jerusalem. The disciples marveled because they they knew what awaited the master if they kept on their present road. They didn't understand it all, but they knew this was Jesus' death march. One of the longest in history, I suppose. And the disciples were amazed as Jesus confidently walked out front, leading the way as a general into battle with resolve and certainty. And the crowd behind, our text says, were fearful. And not fearful in a scared or a cowering sense, but they were bewildered and they were confused. The crowd is following Jesus and he's making all of these claims and he's backing it up with miracles that they've either seen or they've heard about. And now, instead of building an army to liberate us, he says that there are people in Jerusalem who want to kill him. And guess where he's going? Jerusalem. They were fearful. Baffled, confused. The crowd thinks that this Jesus from Galilee has real potential. So why on earth is he marching out in front of us with determination to the very place they say will kill him? But Jesus doesn't address the crowd. Their preconceived notions, their faulty messianic hopes and expectations. Instead, what does he do? He pulls his disciples into himself. He huddles them up and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. The verb here for happen means to tell what was going to unfold, a revealing, a coming together of events. The grand stage for the greatest sacrifice, the greatest exchange was about to go into the final act. The plan orchestrated from the ages, from Genesis 3, the Protoevangelium, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, the plan of the ages to reconcile sinful man to a holy God is about to be fulfilled. Behold, Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem. He was not giving them a geography lesson. They knew where they were going, but he is setting their mind right. If you are walking to Jerusalem, you bring a sacrifice. Just as Isaac told Jacob that the Lord would provide a lamb, God has done so. And as the disciples walked to Jerusalem for Passover, their lamb, their spotless lamb, is with them. Their sacrifice will walk itself there and will lay itself down on the altar. Jesus went on that the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And we did a fairly deep dive into Jesus' meaning of this title, referring to himself as the Son of Man, portraying his humanity, his humility, his deity. And from Daniel, of course, we saw the prophecy. And finally, verse 34 completed the passion prediction with such specificity, such graphic detail. This prophecy was delivered as someone who wrote the plan. Like an author describing his own book, Jesus told us as his torture, how his death, his torture, his resurrection would occur. 
As Luke 18, 31 tells us, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Scripture has but one author. And that very author speaks to his disciples on the road up from Jericho going to Jerusalem. We drew such comfort from this third passion prediction, didn't we? We saw in Jesus' words the evidence of a God who plans, not a God who reacts. If God has cared for the biggest, most consequential events, like his own death and resurrection, then surely not even a sparrow falls without his noticing. Surely every hair on your head is numbered. And that is a great comfort in this world of shifting sand. Well, today in our text, we come upon yet another remarkable scene. Beloved, I pray that through the exposition of Scripture, by mining the details, by drawing out the meaning, perhaps stories that were once ordinary are now extraordinary. Every word given to us by the Holy Spirit in His Word is painted in high definition. It's in technicolor. No story or telling, no verb or noun or adjective is given to us simply to keep us moving along so we can get to the good parts. These are the good parts. Where we once may have thought we had a common story of Jesus on the side of the road speaking to his disciples, we find precious jewels that impact the nitty-gritty now as we go back to our homes and our lives. I want to remind us of that wonderful truth, brother, beloved, as we make our way through this glorious gospel. Nothing is common. Nothing is wasted. There is no filler by Mark to get us to the good stuff. We're in it right now, today, this morning. And today, as we come upon the scene that is going to hit home in the application department differently for each, For some, it may well put its finger right on some of the sorest spots in our lives and in our own hearts. We observe and we are going to grapple with the insidious sin of pride. We stare headlong into the manifestations and the effects that pride has on an individual, and in this case, even in believers, and the silly and audacious things that pride can move us to say and do. Well, because of the broad nature of our text, this is not meant to be a thorough, systematic treatment of the topic of pride because our text goes beyond those boundaries in multiple areas. So while I would like to just camp on pride, it certainly could fill a whole series. Our text travels to a few other corners of the heart as well. And of course, we cannot even get past the creation account We can't get past the fall of Lucifer from heaven. We cannot even begin to begin the story of redemption without running headlong into the sin of pride that was conceived in the heart of Lucifer, of Satan. We cannot even approach the temptation and the fall of man in Eden without pride having already colored the ethos before created time and history even began. You know, Proverbs tells us that pride goes before a fall. And in the case of Satan, ironically, pride literally became for, happened before the fall. Now, some of our more astute congregants ask at this point, 
and have asked, how could God have created everything and said that it was good if Satan's pride had already caused him to be cast out of heaven? Clearly everything was not good. How can God have looked over it all and say that it was good? I'm so glad you asked. Sadly, that's not the focus in our text today, however. But as some may not be aware, there is a blog tab available on sermonaudio.com page for Harrison Hills where we've written an article addressing that very important question. How was Satan able to have the desire to sin when all was good and perfect in heaven? Yet today we aren't considering lofty concepts in, in pre-creation about pride. This remarkable demonstration of, of hubris and of pride in our text today is here. It's on earth and it's raw for us to see and learn from. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training us in righteousness. And so it is for us this morning. With that, let's look at our text, beloved. Let's look at our text. Mark 10, 35 through 40. Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand, and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have a word present to us, accessible and open to us today. Lord, that do not show our heroes of the faith as conquerors, but Lord, as men, as fallen men who struggled with pride, Lord, as so many of us do. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take this word, that you would wield it in your bow, that you would cause it to find its mark as always. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, we've all heard the term, even a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? Or even a broken clock is right twice a day. And I thought of that as I read a quote by Charles Darwin this week. Darwin co correctly writes, quote, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Close quote. Not too true. Well, some time ago, two social psychologists, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, they conducted an extensive study on a fascinating cognitive bias in which people believe that they are smarter than they really are. See all the wives elbowing their husbands here, right? You're not as smart as you think. Well, essentially what they found was that low-ability people do not possess the skills needed to recognize their own incompetence. The combination of poor self-awareness and low cognitive ability lead them to overestimate their capabilities. 
This widely became known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. David Dunning wrote, quote, In many cases, incompetence does not leave people disoriented, perplexed, or cautious. Instead, the incompetent are often blessed with the inappropriate confidence buoyed by something that feels to them like knowledge. Close quote. Well, long before the Dunning-Kruger effect was formalized, the disciples James and John would have made excellent test subjects. Let's dive into our first verse here as we watch what the world calls the Dunning-Kruger effect and what the Bible calls foolish pride. Verse 35, verse 35. We begin, then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. Now let's pause there for a moment. Who is it that we're dealing with here? James and John. Do we remember? Bonerges, sons of thunder, which we thought would be such a cool name for a men's Bible study, right? But it's not cool. Translated, what does it mean? Sons of anger, sons of agitation. Jesus' nickname for them was not a compliment. It was based on the worst personality traits that they possessed. They were impulsive. They were hotheads. They were ready to rumble. Always. Now it says that they came up to Jesus. This is meant to imply that they came up to Jesus while he was alone. A little private powwow. No other disciples. But we must rotate the gospel diamond to get a full picture of all who's present. Matthew 20 also records this private meeting, but he gives us more detail. Matthew 20, 20 tells us, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Well, isn't that interesting? Someone brought mom along. And why is that? What can we learn and glean from that? Well, who was mom? We know who mom was. Her name was Salome, or Salome if you're fancy. That's a name that should sound familiar. We see her as one of the three woman, women at the feet of Jesus at the cross in Matthew 27. Salome was not just a random mom. She was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Now that changes the equation here, doesn't it? Salome, sister of Mary, has come along with her boys to make this petition. Guess what she's doing? She's calling in some family privilege. Now, we don't know if mom was the instigator of this illustrious plan or if it was just the, the bluster of James and John that drove it, but either way, here we are. A side powwow with extended family thinking that they have the inside track to the kingdom. Now, let's be honest. Up to this point, James and John had been quite privileged, hadn't they? They were in the inner circle. Mark 5, 37, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. But what event really puffed James and John up? What has happened recently to really make them feel special? Elevator card to the top floor executive suite, right? Inner sanctum type of stuff. Behind the curtain, VIP. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves and he was transfigured before them. Oh boy. 
We must really be something special to be asked here. Didn't know I was so awesome, but apparently I am. And if I am an honorary member of the inner sanctum of the cool kids club, it should come with certain benefits, should it not? Watch this, last part of verse 35. Saying to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. Really? Well, I try not to use my kids too much in sermon analogies. It's one of the pains of being a PK. But I have had one of my children say this to me almost verbatim. Daddy, I'm going to ask you something and I need you to say yes. Now, while it's humorous from our children, consider the heart disposition that could say this to the Messiah. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Is that not baffling? It's like walking into Buckingham Palace and putting your feet up and saying, Queenie, how about some coffee in here? Right? It's jaw-dropping on its face. But we need to pause on this before we become too sanctimonious and in lofty judgment over James and John. Saints, if we were to verbalize what was in our hearts some days, if you and I were to verbalize with words what our actions were actually saying, we would fare no better than our sons of thunder. Of course, we have taught that everything we do and say is in fact what? A theological statement. Imagine if we verbalized that theological statement. How super spiritual would we sound? Why hasn't anyone taken out the trash yet? How about... You failed to serve me, and I'm worthy to be served. I find my joy and peace in having a clean home and an empty trash can, but not in Christ. I want all annoyances and hindrances that could possibly be used to sanctify me in my life to leave immediately. My desire is for an empty trash can, and you have gotten in between me and my desire, and so now I'm angry. Why hasn't anyone emptied out the trash? How does that sound? But that's what's rolling around in the heart, isn't it? So we dogpile, as we dogpile onto James and John here, we do so from our own place of humility. If we verbalize what our actions say and our hearts think, we would have our own place in the hall of shame, wouldn't we? Yet in our text, this is really a bit of a sneak attack on Jesus. They think they're going to be able to play the family card. Some sort of soft manipulation. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now this is what the older generation might have called moxie. Bold and brash. But what about Jesus? How does Jesus respond? I'll tell you Jesus was the ultimate pastor. Did he say, are you kidding me right now? After all I've taught you, you've walked with me for three years now, being taught on humility, having demonstrated to you time and again, have you learned nothing? Are you kidding me? What every pastor wants to say sometimes. Not at all. Look at Jesus' response to this audacious statement in verse 36. Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Wow. For those of us who can be critical, 
For those of us who are quick to correct or criticize, what an example from our Savior. James and John are over the top wrong here. In every conceivable way, they're out of line. And look at the gentleness of Jesus. He could have plowed them over right there. And what makes Jesus' gentle response even more remarkable? It's that Jesus already knows what they're about to ask. The insanity of it, the hubris and the pride that is about to gush forth. And yet still we marvel at the gentleness of Jesus. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Here comes the ask. Brace yourself. Verse 37. Verse 37. And they said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. If we were to think back to Matthew 5, there we witness really the greatest sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount, where James and John would have sat on the grass And there they would have heard, blessed are the poor in spirit. Meaning, blessed are those that come spiritually bankrupt. Not an ounce of pride to bring. Far from being lifted up and exalted, blessed are those that come as a spiritual beggar. I come as someone who has nothing to offer or to bring, but my sin that makes my salvation necessary. Blessed is that person. How far away are James and John from the Sermon on the Mount today? They clearly don't think they're spiritually bankrupt. In fact, we believe that we should be able and we should be granted the exclusive right to sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. Pride deludes. It was pride that literally turned angels into devils. James and John are not coming in gratefulness and humility because pride always thinks it has not gotten what it properly deserves. But yet, beloved, we know that biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? It is thinking of yourself less. In fact, that is so true. For example, even with low self-esteem, Right, What we would consider to be the opposite of being prideful, low self-esteem, is in fact rooted in pride. Whether one is thinking high of themselves or low of themselves, who's still at the center of it all? Self. Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That's not the headspace we see James and John in. Now again, to be fair and generous, we have to acknowledge the confidence and the faith that the disciples have in Jesus to even ask this, right? They clearly don't doubt that Jesus is going to rule and reign. Jesus will triumph in his mission. And when he does, I want to be in the main car of the ticker tape parade. Still, they believe in the coming success of Messiah. So let's give them some credit there as we continue to pummel our sons of thunder. And they said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. Now here, beloved, our Greek is so instructive to betray the hearts of the speaker. 
Our verb for grant, grant here, is shockingly given in the aorist imperative. Our A students remember that this means it is an urgent command. It is calling for a specific, definite, decisive choice. Do this now, at once, once and for all. Yikes. Sons of thunder indeed. Bold and brash indeed. Let's not only ask for the highest and best, but let us command Messiah to give it and decree it now. We have to speak to the inner motives of the disciples' hearts revealed by the text here. Why? Because Jesus perceived and saw it all. Grant that we may sit. Now watch how magnanimous they get. They're willing to give Jesus an ask here. Look, we won't tell you who you have to put at your right hand. You can pick that. Just so long as one of us is on your right and one of us is on your left. You choose. Yet James and John were with Jesus when he essentially told Peter at the top uh, at the, at, that he was top dog back in Caesarea Philippi, didn't he? They were there. Peter, you're the rock. On you, I'm going to build this church. Most assuredly so. But pride is still jockeying for position. Self is running the train. They want to sit at Jesus' side in what state? In what state? In your glory. What are we talking about here? In your glory. Matthew says, in your kingdom. Well, we know what James and John's reference is for this. What had they just witnessed a few chapters before? We read it. James and John witnessed the transfiguration. That is undoubtedly their frame of context and reference for this. This is what in your glory means to them. Now, did they get that right? You think what you saw on that mountain was Jesus' full glory? His state of glory that he will live and rule and reign in? You think that sparkling white robes and a shining face is the full glory of Jesus? Think again. That's just a preview. You got the trailer version of the show. It's more awesome in power than we could imagine. Of course, John the Revelator would later get a, a better glimpse of that glory, wouldn't he? But that's the frame of their reference here. Yet the transfiguration was just a glimpse behind the curtain. They don't know what they are asking for. They believed because they were able to be in the presence of Jesus on the mountaintop, that they were able to, to hobnob with, with Moses and Elijah, that they should be the ones to sit at the right hand and the left hand. We've seen your glory, and we can totally handle that. In fact, we did. Pride deludes. Paging Dr. Dunning and Kruger. These men don't know what they don't know. Their frame of reference is so low that they actually think they know something. Your, your bicycle wheel still has training wheels on it, and you think you're in the Tour de France. Jesus says as much in verse 38. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. That's called putting it mildly. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now this is future language here. This is beautiful. Let me give you a definition of that future language. The futuristic present is used here. 
denoting an event which has not yet occurred, but which is regarded as so certain that in thought it may may be contemplated as already coming to pass. Close quote. The God who plans absolute certainty. I will drink of this cup. What cup does Jesus speak of? Matthew 26, 39, same word. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Can you drink that cup, James and John? Can you really? Do you know what's in that cup? I'm going to be made sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The father is going to turn his back on me. The weight of the world will be put on my shoulders. This is the cup that I will drink. It will please the father to crush me. I will drink the wrath of God poured out against sin in this cup. Can you drink that? Can you really? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. It's the same, the same thing. Jesus says in Luke twelve fifty, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Speaking of his coming torture and death. Can you walk this path, James and John? Of course, the question is rhetorical. Of course, they can't in the sense that Jesus will. They cannot drink that same cup. And their response in verse 39, verse 39, we are able. We are able. Beloved, today as you and I gather here, we do not fully comprehend the cross, do we? Even as we sit on the other side of that event with God's word about it preserved for us, we can study it with all intensity and urgency and can say with confidence we will never grasp the glory of the cross on this side of eternity. Try as we may, we will never in our finite minds and thinking be able to grasp the awesome horror the incredible suffering as the darling of heaven was made sin on our behalf. The closest bond of any relationship in all space and time is the perfect relationship within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All existing in perfect love and harmony with one another since before even the created element of time. Never has there been such perfection of relationship And yet now it would please the Father to crush the Son. God will turn his back on his Son as the weight of of our sin was laid upon him. This is the cup Jesus would drink from. This is the baptism with which he would be baptized. In this sense, no human was worthy or able to drink of the chalice of the winepress of God's wrath. But beloved, consider what wonderful news that is. Consider what that tells us. Who is the only one who can have the full wrath of God poured out on him and live to tell about it? God himself. 
Only God can absorb the wrath of God and live. Behold the glorious truth of the hypostatic union, that God was fully God and fully man. He was not 50% God and 50% man to make up 100%. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. When God accomplishes salvation, he does so 200%. The chalice, the cup that Jesus would drink of, cannot be shared with the disciples in the truest sense. Because only God can absorb the wrath of God. All others would be turned to dust. That's why there's no other way God could save us. No other way that God could reconcile sinful man with a holy God. And still the writer of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But all the blood that has come before... All the flesh of the bulls and the lambs has been consumed by the fire of the altar. It's ash. All the blood has been lapped up by the coals. All this sacrifice could do was cover sin. Like someone who never showers but only throws on more perfume to cover the smell. No, we needed to be washed. We needed to be washed. Washed clean. But in order for that to happen, the wrath of God against sin but not, must not simply be assuaged or covered over or put at bay. It must be satisfied. Who then can I pour my wrath out upon to accomplish such a task? I could put my wrath in an eyedropper, just a drop. And I could search the world over and every drop would turn them to dust, dust. Drop dust, drop dust. What will mankind do? Do we see the peril of our situation? There is no one. The wrath of God must not be given in drops. It must be poured out. It will fill the chalice to the brim. And there must be one who will take that cup with both hands and put it to his lips and drink it down to the last drop and live to tell about it. Only my son, only divinity can survive the wrath of divinity. Behold the beauty of Jesus. I hope we see the beauty of scripture, beloved. I hope we see how no man in a hundred lifetimes could concoct such a story. We want to leave today in wonder of our Savior and our God. Back to our text. With all that said, what does Jesus tell the disciples the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Is this a contradiction? Not at all. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying James and John would be sacrificed for the sins of the world? Is that their cup? Of course not. But would they suffer? Immensely. Would they also give up their lives for the gospel? Most certainly. James, you will be killed very early on. John, you'll die in banishment on Patmos. You will suffer for my namesake. Like me, you will be turned over to evil men and killed. You will drink of my cup in the sense that you will identify with me in your death. And in my cup, I will drink. I will be given reward, won't I? 
Christ will be given a reward. All heaven and earth will be put under his feet. I will be given the gift of my elect that I have purchased by my death and put into my hands that I may hold. Reward is also in your cup. Great is your reward. Blessed are you when you endure all manner of hardships for my sake. Not a single drop of the blood of Calvary was wasted. And nor is the blood of the martyrs wasted. It cries out, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true. How long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Just as my blood purchased the pardon of my people, so will your blood, James and John, the blood of all the martyrs, be the seed of the church. Oh, you will drink of this cup of suffering. It will cost you everything, though you could not bear to understand it all yet. And as for the rest of your requests, finally, verse 40, verse 40. But to sit on my right or my left hand, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It may be easy to gloss over, but this statement by Jesus is positively loaded with doctrine and theology, is it not? What huge topics do we see represented? How about the son's submission to the father? That's a whole series unto itself. No time this morning. How about the planning and preparation for those who would occupy these places of honor? It's already set. It's not in flux. It's not unknown. It is decreed and done. The word for prepared here is given in what's known as the perfect tense, meaning that it is a settled matter and that it will remain a settled matter. What you are asking for is not something that I can give out as a a divine favor between family and friends. This is cosmic stuff. This is from before the foundation of the world type of stuff. Those for whom this position has been prepared are themselves being prepared for that position. And what does that look like? Is there just one seat to Jesus left or right? Or one glory seat? One seat of honor to Jesus left and right? I have no idea. There's nothing saying that there could not be many seats. And I'm inclined to believe there are. Either way, that's for the Father to decide. It is settled who will be there before time began. Isn't it wonderful to have a God who is a planner? Isn't it wonderful that in the beauty of election, God has gone before us and he has prepared for the success of our evangelism to a lost world? It is prepared. It's prepared. And despite the pride and the foolishness of James and John, Despite the delusions of grandeur and their misplaced priorities, Jesus was gracious. Jesus was gentle, teaching us even as he taught them. There will be a cup for all believers to drink from. 
And it brings with it trouble, persecution. For some in our world, it will even bring death. We are baptized with him unto his death. And yet it was well, well written, he who goes nearest in time to Christ, the crucified, shall get nearest in eternity to Christ, the glorified. Let me read that again. He who goes nearest in time, here and now, to Christ the crucified, shall get nearest in eternity to Christ the glorified. We seek to make Jesus' name famous, not our own. We're happy to die unknown. We seek the glory of Christ, not our own. We don't seek to share in the glory that belongs to Christ alone. Saints' pride deludes and it separates. It seeks to place ourselves in a position of our choosing, not of God's placing. And we don't need to do that. God exalts and God puts down. James and John were there at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. Blessed are those who know they have nothing to bring, that they know they deserve death and hell, and yet are given new life in Jesus. It is enough. There's a story of an old woman who lived in a very old, run-down cottage. As she sat down to her meal of a single piece of bread and a little water, she lifted up her hands in praise and blessing, saying, What? All this? And Christ too. just to be counted in the beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift our arms this morning in blessing and praise, exclaiming, what? All of this in Christ too. Lord, we pray that we be that you would be our all in all this morning. Lord, where we have desired to lift ourselves up or we have desired positions or places or prominence that you have not set for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us your beauty that is more than enough regardless of what we have accomplished in our spiritual life or our material life, you are more than enough. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would tend to your sheep this week. We ask that you would keep them safe until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen.